Writing in 1989, in response to the fall of the Berlin Wall, political scientist Francis Fukuyama declared, quote, What we may be witnessing is not just the end of the Cold War or the passing of a particular period of post-war history, but the end of history as such. That is, the end point of mankind's ideological evolution and the universalization of Western liberal democracy as the final form of human government, end quote. In 1992, after the dissolution of the Soviet Union, his book, The End of History, became a bestseller, the triumphal victory speech for capitalism and its battle against socialism. Two decades later, the New York Times was no less triumphal regarding the 20th anniversary of the fall of the Berlin Wall. Once the wall came down, the emptiness of the communist system had been exposed. The calculations of power and politics were overwhelmed by a single-minded quest. Call it freedom. Even in some left circles, the warm glow of capitalism's triumph was too tempting to avoid. The British Socialist Workers' Party dedicated most of the Marxism 2009 conference to celebrating the collapse of the Soviet Union, which they declared a, quote, great revolution. The purpose of this podcast, however, is not to debate whether the Soviet Union was good or bad, or to get into the most boring debate of all for Western library leftists, was it socialist or not? The point is to talk about what was happening to the actual people living in the former Soviet Union in the Soviet bloc while the West was celebrating. As their world collapsed around them and history ground to a halt, the people in the former Soviet Union saw a collapse in their life expectancy and fertility rates unprecedented in modern history. People froze to death at the whims of a privatized power company, liquefied their insides drinking industrial cleaner that had been remarked as vodka, and scraped, squatted, and tried to survive amidst the ruins of a former civilization. That's right, guys. It's the inaugural episode of Mechanical Freak Presents. Let's get depressed. Be positive. Here with my uh, special guests, uh, my friend, mm-hmm. my plague cohabitant, confidant, my special lady friend. Thank you for being a friend and friend of the podcast, Bren Roth. Hi. And so, some of you who are uh, avid listeners of Seattle Sucks might have become aware that I have this. Uh, we say habit, foible, whatever, of finding extremely depressing stories and telling them to you uh-huh. and uh, sometimes making you cry. Yeah. It makes me cry more, well, I'd say maybe once or twice a month with depressing stories. 
Yeah, so naturally, being a good boyfriend, my uh, immediate thought after that was, well, why don't we turn that into content? Not to stop doing it, hey guys, but in fact to escalate it. This is going to be the rest of my life. Yeah, escalate it to the point of the recorded word. Mm. <laughs> Welcome to the rest of my life. So, Bren, thank you for joining us for part one. All, All hail, hail the, the new, new flesh. flesh. <laughs> All right. So... Historian Kristen Godsey retells a popular post-communist joke from Bulgaria in her book Red Hangover. Mm -hmm. All right. It goes, question, what did Bulgarians use to light their houses before they started using candles? Mm. What? Electricity. (laughs) (laughs) And so I I wanted to start with that joke because I feel like it. It's really bleak. Yeah, it really captures the reality of the post-Soviet world in a way Mm -hmm. that uh, sometimes, you know, just telling facts doesn't. Like, a joke can really just capture an essence. Mm -hmm. And it's this essence of living in the rubble of a greater civilization, right? Yeah. Living in the shadow of something that once was and that, you know, can never be again, right? I encourage people to look. I'll try and put some links up in the bibliography for this. Uh, some really great like photo essays of just like you know whole abandoned train stations overgrown by nature with like trains in it. You know abandoned factories that once employed thousands next to abandoned apartment blocks where people used to live. Right, everything feels like a neutron bomb was just ignited. Right. Mm. Uh, perhaps my favorite version of this is the book, which we'll link to, uh, by Christa, uh, Christopher Herwig, who's a photographer, and it's called Soviet Bus Stops. And this is great podcasting because I'm showing Bren, who owns this book with me. I own this book with him, yes. But I'm showing it to her. I know. So you guys can imagine this right now. Yeah. But the best part about Soviet Bus Stops is it's just, you know, probably a couple hundred photos of bus stops across the former Soviet Union. And each one of them is unique. Mm-hmm. A lot of them are very whimsical. A lot of them are very beautiful. Uh, Some just look like sculptures. Yeah, I mean, really interesting. And the other thing that they all have in common is they're all dilapidated. They're all run down. And they're all sitting in what looks to, appears to be a wasteland, just completely empty. And it's, I feel like, the most perfect sort of metaphor for the post-Soviet world of this thing that like requires people to exist Mm -hmm. but the people are gone it requires like a modern society to exist but the modern society is gone too and it just (laughs) rots and the I I imagine it must have been like uh you know Europeans in the dark ages staring up at like Roman you know uh aqueducts and just being like what's that as they continue (laughs) to stuff another corpse down the you know well (laughs) So, what you see in this book and what we're going to talk about today is what happens when a country is purposefully deindustrialized. What happens when a country is purposefully impoverished? Its only comparison really is, you know, the British in like the 18th and 19th century with India and their purposeful deindustrialization and depopulation campaign on the Mm -hmm. Indian subcontinent. Uh, But even that really doesn't work because where they did it with like guns and steel and opium, the... Who doesn't love opium, though? (laughs) Exactly. What ended up happening in the former Soviet Union was done like with stock markets and nerds from Harvard, 
right? Oh, my favorite. <clears throat> yeah. And I mean, just an unbelievable destruction that we just never talk about. It's, it's fascinating to me. I, I, I can't get enough of this. Well, before we get into this, we need to go over a quick concept for, you know, maybe for you, but, you know, for our listeners, right? All right. Which is, you know, what happened in the former Soviet Union was that they got to go under what's called shock therapy. And so uh, we just need a, a quick little background on what this all is. Mm-hmm. So, you know, shock therapy is the sort of, uh, is a tactic of neoliberal economic theory. And neoliberal economic theory is this deep belief, at least in its, uh, what its front-facing view of it, is this deep belief in the idea that capitalist markets are an inherently natural part of the world, as natural as the grass that grows and the wind that blows, right? I mean, it just, you know, yeah, seems so natural. And so if something is going wrong in your country, if there's poverty, if there's whatever, uh, that's because the markets aren't functioning properly because they're out of balance. (laughs) And Uh, they see... Get your crystals out? Exactly. You're going to balance those chakras? And so shock therapy is all about restoring the balance. Okay. And yeah, as you pointed out, this sounds like some woo-woo bullshit. Mm-hmm. And the reason for that is because half these guys all belong to a literal cult around Ayn Rand, where they would sit oh. at her feet while she read them stories and told them tales of old Hollywood. And uh, yeah, at one point she was even running a harem, which I think is... Uh, uh, Milton Friedman's break with Ayn Rand, I think, was that he wasn't allowed into the harem. <laughs> but uh, Milton Friedman's sort of the spiritual godfather of neoliberal economics, oh. and he has a disciple uh, who ends up, who is actually directly trained into Larry Summers, who's a name we're going to get to hear a lot, Woo-hoo. named Jeffrey Sachs, who is going to be mm. the key protagonist of our mm, story. He sounds like he's going to be familiar. <laughs> Yeah, and Jeffrey Sachs is the guy behind, like, actually instituting shock therapy. Now, what shock therapy is, is this wonderful thing. Actually, if you listen to this week's Seattle Sucks episode, you'll get to hear about another, uh, the, the thing called the Laffer Curve, which is the exact same premise. Okay. Which is this amazingly uh, academic, airtight thing where somebody in the <laughs> econ department just draws a, a, a curve on a board and says, that's how the economy works. It's not based <laughs> on anything. They just do it, right? And that's how it works now. It's just natural. And so they that's have, why. Yes, they have what's called a U-curve. And the reason they call it that is because it's a line that comes forward for a little bit. Then it drops straight down. Then it sits in the valley for a while. And then it shoots straight up, right? So that's a U-curve, okay. right? Yeah. And the premise of this is that line going straight forward, that's the economy in its current state, right? Okay. Then you apply shock therapy, which naturally crashes the economy and sends it right into the toilet. Then that part. But what is the the shock therapy part? Oh, we'll get to that in a second. Okay. Then there is the part at the bottom, Uh which we'll call, uh, you know, life in the toilet. Then it starts to peak up. We'll call that section of the curve question mark. And then economy through the roof because balance has been restored. You know what toilet bowls Mm -hmm. look like? Yeah, it's like that. Just like that. Mm-hmm. And so the shock therapy part of it is this idea of, you know, you have to restore the natural state of the market by removing unnatural inputs. Now, they pose all this in this language of the natural world purposefully because this yeah. is actually a very political thing they're doing, yeah. which is an unnatural input into the economy would be something like, uh, you know, 
unemployment insurance or a minimum wage. That's okay. an unnatural input that is throwing the market's chakras out of balance. Sounds like what they say yeah. is happening right now. Yeah. A natural input, however, might be somebody having more wealth than half the population in the country combined. But not a pandemic. That's, that's a natural input, right? Yeah. Uh, an unnatural input would be unions, right? Yeah. A yeah. natural input would be, you know, Coca-Cola hiring death squads to kill union workers in Colombia. Yeah, that sounds about so, right. So this idea of natural and unnatural imbalance is obviously to hide this very like fraught political thing. Yeah. So the idea is remove all protections for workers, remove any ability to negotiate for your wage, remove any ability for workers to hold any sort of power or have any sort of decent life, <sighs> and then uh, the economy will get better, right? Now, it's work, never gotten better for anybody. Work, work, yeah. work. So they've been doing this, you know, since the early 70s, where they started yeah. with Ian, or with killing Allende and installing Pinochet. Okay. Uh, it hasn't worked yet, but that doesn't mean that it won't. And in the 90s, they were feeling good. And I like they're calling it like using like terms like natural, but yet this concept they've it hasn't been around for that long. Yeah, the, right. Well, so, I mean, the very concept of capitalism, of course, is only like a few centuries old. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah, but, but it's clearly natural, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, I think we're going to find out is in the stories that uh, that maybe just maybe there's an actual cynical motive behind this, right? Policy. I mean. So, all right, let's go. Let's just do this. So, there's one last part of shock therapy that's very important, which is they inter they they inferred early on that there might be a political problem with shock therapy, which oh. is when you tank the economy and put everybody into dire poverty, they might get mad at you. Yeah. So, it became very important in these discussions about shock therapy at the Chicago School You completely and disarm them? Well, even more than that, it just became really important that you limit the amount of democratic input as much as possible. Yeah, so preferably a strong-arm dictator. Uh -huh. Preferably uh, you want death squads. That's Wait very important. Wait a minute, though. Uh, the idea is, yeah, you want a strong-arm dictator. You want death squads. You want the natural intervention of groups like the CIA and the American military and all that to make sure that you can uh, return, you can get rid of this unnatural thing that is democratic input from the population. Right, right, right. And uh, you know, make sure your reforms are followed so. and that you can return <laughs> to the state of nature. Oh, uh, yeah. So all that being said, okay, let's get to our story. All right, guys. <sighs> so in 1990, Bruce Gelb, an heir to the Clairol fortune, two generations removed, Cool. Uh, as well as potential relative of Leslie Gelb, who was one of the biggest promoters of the Iraq War in 2003. Character we'll come Seems to know. Seems like a really good guy. Yeah, we'll lay, we'll know, we'll get to the Leslie Gelb in uh, future episodes. Oh Jesus! Okay. Uh, I couldn't prove their relationship, but uh, there's a lot of Gelbs that all seem to be in the same orbit around New York City, and I'm pretty sure it's uh, that there that there's some connection. So in 1990, Bruce Gelb was then head of the United States Information Agency. He commented on the expertise that we were sending to Russia, because the U.S. was already flooding Russia with uh, advisors and whatnot, to help them on this uh, anticipated transition to a new economic system, right? Okay. So, commenting on this to the press, on, you know, the advisors we were sending, he said, quote, the vipers, the bloodsuckers, the middlemen, that's what needs to be re rehabilitated in the Soviet Union. That's what makes our kind of country click. 
That so. is fucking vomit worthy. <laughs> so, all these advisors went uh, in 1991. They essentially won a coup. There was a general, and there was a vote in actually 1990 where people had voted overwhelmingly to transition to some sort of social democratic model. Uh-huh. Uh huh. They had Yeltsin in power, and Yeltsin decided, no, fuck that. We're going with the shock therapy model. That's going to be based off of, you know, IMF loans and availability, and also the promise that Yeltsin's going to get a lot of money, which we'll get into later. But right now, we're here to talk about some of the effects, right? Yeah. Yeah. So. Within three years, Russian unemployment went from zero to 15 million. Uh, Price controls were lifted for consumer goods on, I believe, January 5th, 1992. Uh, But not notably not for industrial inputs, just for things that people on the ground were buying. Yeah. Which caused massive price hikes, right? So in the first month alone, the average price of consumer goods rose 245%. And, uh, you know, basically everybody lost all their savings buying necessary goods now you say why not just wait you know if you don't go out and purchase things then maybe the prices will go back down because they'll be seeking (laughs) markets well luckily well yeltsin had informed everybody in the country that he would be uh removing the soviet price controls which made things actually affordable he'd be removing those price controls and he told people about that two months ahead of time Hmm. so what happened was is by mid-november all the stores in Russia were empty. All the shelves were empty. But yet, it's all the shop owners. Communism was the <laughs> yeah. problem? Yeah. So all the shop owners pulled all their stuff because why sell it now when you could sell it for more money later? Right. Right? So anyways, by telling you know, store owners the date or whatever, he made sure that people were essentially in as bad a position as they could be to where they would have to buy the stuff at the hiked up prices, wow. and, you know, uh, when, when the prices were floated, right? Now, to give you an idea of how crazy this was, they had opened a McDonald's in Moscow in 1989, right? First one. And in 1990, in December or November of 1991, the cost of a hamburger at McDonald's was 38 rubles. Okay. Within two weeks of floating prices across Russia in January, it went from 38 rubles to 100 rubles. Now, to give some context to that, the average Russian worker made between 500 and 800 rubles a month. That's insane. So basically, the cost of a McDonald's sandwich increased to about a fifth of your monthly pay. That's fucking nuts. (laughs) It was about a car payment's worth of hamburger. Wow. (laughs) So nationally within a year prices had increased 2500 percent so what effectively happened was that the savings of the population of russia were completely wiped out this price hike worked as a sponge to soak all their wealth out of the banks out of their so they just robbed everybody yeah out of their bed cushions all that kind of stuff right by 1995 things had gotten worse obviously and unpaid wages exceeded $7.5 billion annually. And I'm not going to use rubles anymore because the numbers in rubles are so astronomical. They're actually not even understandable. I think it's 30 trillion rubles at this point. Uh, but exceeded $7.5 billion American dollars annually uh, Yeah, by 95. Meaning yeah. the average worker put in about one free month of work per year uh, for cool. all his paid months, right? Cool. <laughs> by 1996, the standard of living in Russia had been cut in half. And the director of the Institute of Economic Analysis in Moscow had to admit, quote, most people live far worse than they ever did. So let's get to one of our characters. All right. 
So Anders Aslund was a Swedish economist who was working with a team of advisors to Boris Yeltsin under the leadership of Harvard economist Jeffrey Sachs. Okay. Writing in 1993, he wrote of the situation in Russia. Quote, I breathe more freely when I come to Eastern Europe, <laughs> escaping the small-mindedness of Western Europe. During each visit, I am gladdened by the great future and the new triumphs of capitalism. Jesus, that's fucking disgusting. Aslan had always felt uh, closed in in Sweden where people demanded things like uh, health care and minimum wages. God. And he yearned to breathe free. Mm-hmm. And in Russia, he could. So <laughs> after 10 years of living amidst the triumphs of capitalism, uh, many former Soviet states wound up taking their place amongst the poorest countries on the planet. So in Kyrgyzstan, 88% of the population lived below the poverty line by 2000. Uh, in Turkmenistan, Ukraine, Uzbekistan, Kazakhstan, and Moldova, it was between 60 and 60% of the population living under poverty. Wow. Right? Now, Ukraine, so it's not all bad news. So Ukraine moved from a position of quote-unquote absolute poverty in 2000 to only suffering from quote-unquote relative poverty <laughs> in 2009, <laughs> according to the UN. <laughs> now, the problem being that, of course, in uh, 2009, this little thing happened in America called the financial collapse uh-huh. uh, that then spread around the world and actually wiped out all the gains in the Ukraine. Actually, they went backwards as far as wealth. Wow. So at this point, Ukraine is right back. It's the poorest country in Europe where most people live in absolute poverty. On top of that, they're also fighting a civil war sponsored by the United States. Cool. <laughs> so, you know, great. <laughs> <laughs> so even in Germany where, you know, it was sort of the best case scenario for, you know, uh, being brought under the uh, uh, gentle embrace of capitalism, right? Uh, <laughs> you know, going, you, you had to join West Germany, and they probably weren't just going to turn West Germany into an Eastern European hellhole overnight, right? Yeah. So you had best case scenario situation, right? Mm. So even in Germany, the East German unemployment rate today is 50% higher than the West German unemployment rate. Mm. It's historically been two to three times higher. And while the poverty gap between East and West has closed considerably in the last 10 years, uh, that is, quote, primarily due to rising income poverty in West Germany, according to the German Institute of Economic and Social Research. Hmm. So even in Germany, where the sort of there's been a, a coming together where, you know, East German unemployment's gone down a little bit, hmm. where, you know, East the gap the wealth gap between East Germany and West Germany has gone down a little bit. Mm -hmm. That's almost due entirely to the fact that unemployment's gone up in West Germany and income has gone down in West Germany. (laughs) So it's basically a product of a race to the bottom where the West Germans are just moving a little bit faster than the East Germans on the way down. So with this uh, growing poverty, of course, came a collapse in life expectancy. So in 1995, the British medical journal The Lancet estimated that declines in life expectancy across the former Soviet Union led to an additional 500,000 to a million deaths per year. Okay. So basically every year, just a little mini Holocaust. Great. (laughs) I mean, honestly, doing uh, what the Nazis tried to do for years. uh, And they're just effortlessly doing it. Yeah. Uh, Proving that uh, the pen truly is mightier than the sword. The journal noted, quote, 
The magnitude and steepness of the fluctuation in mortality rates and life expectancy reported here for Russia are without parallel in the modern era. And they get to hear this a lot when it comes to things happening in Eastern Europe uh-huh. being without parallel. Yeah. <laughs> but a decade into the transition, another thing without parallel in the modern era happened. The average life expectancy for Russian men dropped from 65 to 50. Pravda declared that <sighs> Russian men... 65? You said 65? <laughs> yeah, to 50. I mean, even 65 is really young. It had been going down, actually, since the uh, early 70s Jesus when market Christ. reforms were first introduced into Russia. Wow. <laughs> Union. But yeah, that's a, that's a story mm. for a whole other podcast. Okay. So, Pravda declared that Russian men were becoming extinct. And the issue became a major part of Putin's early myth-making, right? So, you know, there was all these stories internationally and, you know, locally in Russia about, like, villages being completely, like, bereft of men except for very old men and very young men. Okay. You know, everybody between, like, 15 and 40 or 50 was gone. Yeah. Um, Yeah. But, yeah, so, like... Putin's early myth-making around, like, going around without a shirt on and karate-chopping people and <laughs> hunting bears and riding horses. Like, we all laugh about that here. I like, know, what a weirdo. I know. But, like, what he's doing is he's really trying to recapture this thing, right? There's this idea that, like, literally Russia has killed all its men off. Yeah. And he's trying to recapture this idea of some sort of vigorous masculinity, right? He's some sort trying of, to change the narrative. Or yeah, like, yeah. In a country that has just like rapidly declining population numbers, he's trying to say, look, we're not in a death cult. We're not all dying. We're not all, this isn't just a mass suicide. <laughs> like, wow. look, we're vigorous and alive. Uh-huh. And uh, just trying to convince everybody. You know what, Bren? Maybe what? even trying to convince himself. <gasps> so. So the steep decline in life expectancy for Russian men was largely attributable to two factors, which was alcoholism and suicide. And actually a third factor, uh, which I would go ahead and throw in here, which was murder. Because the murder rate actually (laughs) increased three times within two years of uh, going into the uh, capitalist paradise. Uh, There was, yeah, probably a lot of murder-suicides. Actually, in one of the grimmer stories, the uh, amount of the murders of women increased three times in two years. So it went from 5,000 annually to 15,000 annually. Wow. Primarily at the hands of spouses and stuff. It's a small jump. Yeah. small jump. So two years living under freedom. That's what they got. Freedom. Exactly. So when price controls were lifted on consumer goods, the price of foodstuffs more than doubled in a month. But the price of alcohol, which the Soviets have made artificially high because uh-huh. they had all these anti-drinking campaigns, which are actually apparently pretty successful. Okay. Uh, the price collapsed without the price controls, right? Okay. So basically, the booze was flowing from the sky. And it actually, <laughs> the price of alcohol collapsed faster than workers' wages. So relative to the cost of alcohol, your wages actually went up, right? Because okay, your buying yeah. power when it came to alcohol was high, right? Yeah, as well yeah. as anything else. Now. Yeah. There was also, uh, because Russia basically became overrun with grifters, uh, the streets were flowing with actual alcohol, so vodka, but more often grain alcohol. <laughs> and then also flowing with uh, things like cleaning products that had been poured into vodka bottles and things like oh, that. Jesus. So by 1994, the average adult male in Russia was consuming 52.2 liters of pure alcohol per year. Which was by far the highest consumption rate in the world, as in nobody was even in the stratosphere that they were in. Yeah. In 2009, the Russian public chamber reported that 500,000 Russians were dying every year from alcohol abuse. Wow. 
Wow. So, in addition to the... And by the way, this is why Putin is very self-consciously and very publicly a teetotaler as well. So, again, this is going to start to bring a lot of Putin... What seems weird about Putin is going to start to come into focus a little. Okay, okay. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, he famously doesn't drink, and there's a reason for that. (laughs) Yeah. All right. Yeah. So... In addition to, you know, alcoholism killing people in droves, in addition to the murder rate skyrocketing, uh, there was also this issue of the suicide rate rising dramatically after 1991. So uh, basically in 1991, it doubled. And since then, Russia has never been outside of the top five highest suicide rates in the world, uh, which actually went back and checked like year by year. It's never been outside the top five. Wow. Uh, and it's frequently joined by other post-Soviet states. Huh. So this year it was joined by uh, Lithuania. Wow. Um, and 20 years after the collapse of the Soviet Union, because of all these things kind of working together, the Russian population had declined by more than 12 million people. Again, wow. something unprecedented in the yeah. modern world to have a population collapse in a country that isn't currently at war with a refugee crisis. Yeah. You yeah. Know? To just have it fall entirely. Wow. Um, so that's how things were going there. Cool. And basically what happened was is that finally the people of the old Soviet bloc were getting to enjoy the triumphs of oh. capitalism. Oh, really? Enjoy how? Yeah. <laughs> so how would you enjoy part one? Oh. Um... Well, it was on a teardrop scale of one to five. It was like a two. Two or three. I mean, it's very depressing. Part Part 2, The the Feeding feeding Frenzy. frenzy. Mm. So the collapse of the Soviet Union created an unprecedented run to essentially steal everything that wasn't bolted down, right? Never before had the entire infrastructure of a modern industrialized nation just been put up for a fire sale, right? So in East Germany, a trusteeship was established to manage the publicly owned infrastructure of the country. Mm-hmm. The trusteeship sold the property as cheaply and as quickly as it could, selling some factories for as little as one mark, right? So okay. for one dollar for all you unworldly rubes out there. Yeah. Uh, the vast majority of the industry and infrastructure of East Germany have been publicly owned. But after the trusteeship's fire sale, eighty-five percent it was eighty-five percent of it was owned by West German capitalists, right? Okay. Ten percent of it was owned by miscellaneous foreign business interests, and only five percent of it was actually purchased by East Germans, right? Yeah. So what we saw was a massive transfer of the publicly owned infrastructure of the country, publicly owned by the people of East Germany, to literally everybody but them. Uh-huh. <laughs> right? Uh huh. Right. This was part of. Uh, 
Jeffrey Sachs' whole strategy. Uh, the East Germans were following what Sachs had been advising in Bolivia at the time and would go on to advise in Poland, which is sell off the industries and infrastructure as fast as you can. Because if you wait, if you delay on selling off, like trying to get reasonable prices for it, people are going to get mad that you're literally giving away their inheritance. Yeah. So you just get rid of it as quickly as possible, right? <laughs> so, uh, so basically what ended up being sold was 3,400 factories, 520 construction companies, and 465 cooperatives all sold in this manner, right? Uh-huh. So... Once these assets, you know, found their way to the rightful owners, to quote Herbert Hoover's uh, Treasury uh, uh-huh. Secretary Andrew Mellon, uh, a curious thing happened. Mass layoffs were undertaken to appease the gods of efficiency. Hmm. And even more surprising, given this rock-solid economic theory based on somebody scribbling on a chalkboard, uh, a lot of the factories were just simply shuttered. So... It seems that, you know, West German businesses weren't all that interested in competing with East German industry. Uh, oh. So it made more sense just to buy these you know factories and things like that and just mothball them. Right. So seemingly overnight, East Germany went from being the 10th largest industrial economy in the world to yeah. becoming the 40th largest industrial area. And for the next two decades, the East German unemployment rate remained about two to three times that of the West German yeah. unemployment rate. Just pulling the rug out of under these people. Yeah, and I mean, you know, uh, the thing about East German goods is while there is this uh, belief in America that, like, nothing good was ever made in the Soviet Union or in the Eastern Bloc, uh, right. actually yeah. they made lots of, like, very good products that were important in the world economy at one point. Mm-hmm. Hence why East Germany was the 10th largest industrial producer. Uh, they weren't making that all for themselves. They were shipping a lot of that out. Uh, one of those was the Zeiss <sighs> Optics Factory in East Germany, which was considered to be, like, you know, the premier optics factory in the world, which optics is this very specialized process that, like, literally only the Germans do. Uh-huh. And they just shut it down. They literally just bought it and shuttered it. It had 10,000 employees. Cool. Then it had zero. <laughs> yeah. Wow. So in Russia, a similar <laughs> process was taking place under the thoughtful stewardship of the Harvard Economics Department. <laughs> Yay, Harvard! <laughs> Asked about what the goal was in this giveaway of Soviet industry, our good friend and Anders Asland, who's going to appear a lot in this because he's just so lacks so much, he has so little remorse for anything he's done. Okay. Uh, he eventually would write a book called uh, about Soviet privatization that was about the joys of Soviet privatization, and ironically, it ironically got published uh, right on the eve of the uh, ruble crash in '98. Did which he publish was, his uh, own book? Oh no 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 no! no. I'm oh, wait, sure it got no, published by American a very serious imprint. Yeah, probably probably him. the Harvard imprint published it. Would be my guess. Uh huh. So, when asked about you know what the goal of this whole giveaway was, because it didn't really make sense to anybody looking at it from the outside, mm-hmm. Anders Oslan just reported bluntly that it was it was done this way in order to rapidly create a class of owners. Right. So basically. His point was, mm. we need to make sure that there is a strict class division in the society where uh-huh. very few people own everything and so everybody re- else has build to work up for them. the bourgeoisie. Yeah. Well, it was essentially proletarianization, right? So a process that happened over a couple hundred years yeah. in Capital's early days through, you know, enclosure, you know, throwing people off the land, all that kind of stuff. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, he was, they were able to achieve in, like, years, right? Mere yeah. years, right? And they did it by just 
taking an industry that already existed and just telling everybody, fuck off, you don't have this anymore. Uh, where's a guy? It's yours now. Yeah, right? yeah. <clears throat> so. Well, you always need somebody in charge. Mm-hmm. You know? Well, I think that was the idea. So after Yeltsin floated consumer prices and wiped out the savings of most of the country, he issued <laughs> stock certificates that people could use to, you know, invest in a company for the purpose of privatizing the economy. Okay. Now, uh, this is a uh, like Jeffrey bonds? Sachs original idea here. Oh. And the idea, you know, is designed by the nerds at Harvard to get the Russian people to, quote unquote, buy into capitalism, right? The huh. problem being that the Russian people were already suffering through massive unemployment at this time, and many were experiencing the joy of uh, rent hikes and evictions for the first time. Cool. Now, those who were positioned to do so swooped in and offered to give cash now for the stock certificates. (laughs) Doing this, they paid fractions of pennies on the dollar to obtain ownership over what had been the second largest industrial economy in the world, right? Mm -hmm. Massive monopolies were just built and made overnight uh, particularly in the energy sector, right? Yeah. Now, yeah, yeah. so imagine you're this, you know, you're a regular working class person in Russia. You are probably unemployed. Yeah. You definitely have no money anymore. Right. Uh, you're dead fucking broke. Somebody hands you a stock certificate. Doesn't tell you what it is or anything like that. Doesn't yeah. tell you anything on it it has a dollar value or a ruble value on it mm-hmm. but the rubles collapse so you assume that's worth nothing right like, right nobody's right. told you that the ruble value actually on there is uh is locked in at the time it was issued and isn't subject to inflation that was kept from people oh cool um so they thought it had no value whereas those who are politically cl- connected knew it had lots of value actually oh wow so i'm gonna well, run I mean, you whether it was they knew it was valuable or not like they still couldn't fucking buy food with a goddamn got it. thing. You got it. Like, you can't pay their rent with it. You got it. Like, it's kind of like the fucking... And, and many Russians just ex- expressed an absolute perplexity about what a stock certificate is or what stock was. It uh, well, yeah. made How do zero they know fucking sense uh, Yeah, the, I mean, <laughs> stocks are stonks. Sorry, yeah. I mispronounced it. Is a fucking capitalist thing. Well, and I would argue that if you would talk to your average American, they also, I mean, why they might not admit I it, don't understand they also what the don't know what stocks, stocks are or are. understand the stock market or anything like that, which makes sense because none of us are allowed to participate in it. Right. So It just doesn't make sense. So I decided, you know, I, I thought I might read you, uh, there's this amazing article that I'll link to in the bibliography for this by a Swedish journalist named Dan uh, yeah, Dan Josephson. Yeah, okay. whatever. Look, I'm not going to get names right today. Okay. Uh, but mm. he uh, he gave some tips, some uh, multi-step, step-by-step processes. My notebook? For how to make it in Russia. Oh, wow. Okay. So, lesson one. How to barter 2,000 bottles of vodka and get an industrial company in return. What? These are based off of actual things that were happening. What? So, step one. Make sure you're born into a family belonging to the top elite of the old Soviet state so you can have insider information. Step two. When the shock therapists start distributing privatization vouchers to the people, get your own coupon and bide your time. Jesus Christ. Step three. When after some time... Hysterical inflation, also created by the shock therapy, has made the coupons nominally worth no more than a bottle of vodka. Then you go out and buy 
2,000 bottles of vodka. Try to get a quantity discount. Cool, yeah, with another coupon? Step four. Well, you know, I mean, if you buy 2,000 at once, you know, you should get a discount per bottle. Yeah. Step four. Let everyone know that you're willing to exchange coupons for vodka. Step five. Through your good contacts among the political elite, uh, you know that the price of the companies that can be bought for the vouchers hasn't changed with inflation. Since nobody else knows this, most people will gladly relinquish their coupons for a liquor bottle. Collect 2,000 coupons through bartering. Wow. Step six. Helped by your contacts among the elite, find a suitable company and buy it for your coupons. That's it. You now own a company. Of course, you have no capital to make it run, but you can always strip it of all its resources and send the money to your Swiss bank account. (laughs) So, actual things that were happening, right? Wow. Just exchanging these coupons for vodka and then uh, using the coupons to buy a company, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Chesterson describes another method that I thought was uh, pretty hilarious, too, in his article. And this, he talks about another just popular scheme going around at the time. Okay. So... The CEO of a state-owned company starts a non-operational private company. Okay. The state-owned company then lends the new little private company 50000 American dollars. In practice, the CEO has thus granted himself a government loan, right? So he has a state-owned company. He's going to yeah. form a private front company. Yeah. And he's going to loan the private company fifty grand from the state-owned company. Wait, are we company. talking about Elon Musk? Yeah, yeah. Uh, He never did anything this clever. Oh, okay. So, before the planned privatization, the value of the state-owned company was appraised in rubles. The enormous inflation, however, will continually diminish its value in dollars. All right? So, when the state-owned company is worth only $50,000, that's when you take action. The small private company is then used to buy the state-owned company in its entirety with the money it has borrowed from it. So, this is why it's important to borrow the money in dollars. Okay, So, yeah. you borrow money from your company, you borrow it over to your private front. Yeah. Then, as the ruble collapses relative to the dollar, because they fixed the price in rubles of the state-owned company yeah. for the purposes of these voucher coupons. Oh, shit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, I get Basically, it Basically, that $50,000 mark is going to get a lot closer yeah. to the ruble mark okay. on the certificate, uh-huh. right? So companies that were yeah. worth billions are going to drop down. And so then you use the $50,000 that you borrowed with your private company. You use that yeah. private front to then purchase the state-owned company. Okay, then. Now, you merge the two companies. And thereby, the $50,000 debt never has to be paid off because the debtor and the daddy are both the same person. Jesus. So now, you're the legal owner of a former Soviet state-owned company, and you didn't pay a single dollar for it. So the beauty of this, is too, is that you actually never even have to have the $50,000. Because yeah. all this is is just writing receipts back and forth. The $50,000 never has to materialize anyway, either. So you literally, actually, never you're never exposed, and you never pay anything. <sighs> so again, whole companies are just transferred like this. Uh, in fact, uh, uh, George Soros ends up using connections that he has within the uh, Soviet 
government or the not Soviet, but the Russian government uh, connections that he has through the Harvard Economics Department because he has good friends. You know, Larry Summers and Jeffrey Sachs are helping mm. him out. Uh, but he uses connections to actually buy a third of uh, a, a massive Russian telecommunications con- uh, company for mm-hmm. pennies on the dollar in a similar system, a, sim- a similar dollars to deflated rubles scheme. So he essentially took, I think he put in, uh, I think he put in a hundred million, and it became a hundred or something like ten to a hundred billion overnight. Basically, yeah. It was, uh, just astonishing uh, theft, basically, yeah. is the only way to describe it. Yeah. All right. It's fucking awful. So along with all these internal schemes, right, so that mm-hmm. you can develop this new Russian sort of ruling class, mm, cool. uh, the U.S. and Europe also got in on the grift. Woo! Right? USAID and Europe's Fair Assistance Program gave money almost exclusively to American and Western European companies for purchasing old Soviet industry. Mm. And in a repeat of what we saw in East Germany, many of these companies uh, simply chose, after buying this industry, to just mothball it, right? Yeah. Uh, rather than compete with anything in the East, right? Uh-huh. Uh, speculators were able to purchase factories that once employed thousands for as little as $100 uh-huh. and then convert them into massive scrapping operations. 70,000 factories were closed in the first two years of privatization. Wow. And factory workers were able to find temporary unemployment or temporary employment, literally dismantling their former factories to sell for scrap. In one uh, account of this happening in a major way, Estonia became a leading exporter of aluminum by 1998. The only problem being that Estonia has none of the mining reserves or infrastructure to create aluminum. So what was happening was a twofold process. Uh huh. In Russia, they make quite a bit of aluminum. Right. So oligarchs and Western interests in Russia were spiriting away old Soviet stockpiles of aluminum across the border. Oh. And then selling them out of Estonia to Uh avoid any accounting for where it had come from originally. Okay. Yeah. On top of that, Estonia became a nice uh, exit point for selling scrap metal out of old Soviet industry. So essentially... Through just pure black market theft, Estonia became, I think it was like a top five exporter of aluminum by 1998. Wow. So by 98, uh, so, you know, along with everything else, agricultural agriculture was privatized, laying yeah. off millions while producing the worst harvest in 30 years in 1995. By 1998, agricultural production was down 68% under the new privatized scheme. Cool. Uh, and GNP in Russia, which is gross, gross national product, is the value of everything created within the country. So it doesn't count capital flows coming from outside. Right, right. Uh, GNP in Russia declined 83% over the decade. So that yeah. is the evidence of just everything being mothballed. Now, Russia at one point was the second, and at one point in the recent past, was the second largest industrial producer in the world. It is now an economy that relies entirely on exporting natural gas and oil. Yeah. Basically, it went from a modern industrial economy like Germany or the United States or Japan. Yeah. It is now essentially Saudi Arabia, where Uh it has one thing, which is extractive industry. Right. And that is it. (laughs) And nothing else. I mean, just a... A truly astonishing uh, de-industrialization and backwards march. Yeah. So, 
So this feeding frenzy, it had other consequences as well, right? So during the communist era, the Soviet Union had produced 60% of the books in the world. Wow. It had enormous book publishers. People the Soviet Union loved to read. There's, of course, a great Russian literary tradition. That's amazing, actually. I didn't uh, know that. That's... Yeah. I mean, I think the thing that's maybe going to make me really cry is this. <laughs> oh. No, I'm... Yeah, Just keep wait. going. <laughs> Jesus Christ. So Russia had its own great literary tradition. Although, yeah. uh, unlike in the days under the Tsar, where everything had to be written in the Russian language uh-huh. or it would not be allowed to be translated, actually under the Soviet Union, they began translating under the many languages and dialects that exist existed within the Soviet Union, of which I think there are several hundred. Wow. Uh, and it actually led to a great blossoming of uh, things like Georgian novels oh. and Tajik novels and things like that. Wow. So a great literary blossoming had happened, actually, under the Soviet yeah. period. Uh, that all went away. So after 1991, the industry collapsed, and Eastern Bloc countries saw an almost immediate rise in illiteracy rates. Yeah. Libraries were shuttered, and the books were auctioned off or destroyed. The Otto Sur Library in East Germany had all of its collection, 240,000 books, auctioned off. In one instance in East Germany, 50,000 books were simply buried in a dump. Jesus Christ. Like... <laughs> So the opening of the Soviet states also created new markets for Western goods, which flooded into those countries. The collapse of the Soviet Union was a a savior for the tobacco industry, which was coming under stricter regulation in Europe and the U.S. at the time. In 1996, the chairman of R.J. Reynolds told the Washington Post, quote, We have enormous opportunities to use the tobacco industry as a powerful force for improving the economic and social well-being of this part of the world. The tobacco industry was one of the few industries that actually bought up uh, Soviet tobacco or cigarette plants and mm-hmm. actually put them into production. Oh, Although they hmm. eventually then shuttered them as they needed to offshore American production. <laughs> <laughs> but American tobacco, uh, so the American tobacco companies bought up the bulk of the you know Soviet cigarette industry. They eventually shuttered most of it. Uh, converted to basically just offshoring American brands as the Clinton administration passed regulations on smoking in the United States and brought smoking uh, rates down in the U.S. Mm -hmm. Uh, They essentially made up for it with sales in the Eastern Bloc. Uh, The region was flooded with Marlboros and Camels. In in the year 2000, the medical journal Annals of Oncology noted that this had already led to a significant rise in cancer rates. Today, half of all Russian men smoke regularly, and nearly a quarter of all deaths among men are tobacco-related. All right. On the plus side, apparently Russian women don't smoke. Weird. Huh. Uh, Smoking rates among women in the U.S. much higher than in Russia. Smoking rates among men in Russia uh, blow away pretty much everywhere else in the world, except Hmm. for, interestingly... Uh, Southeast Asia, where the tobacco industry also started dumping cigarettes in the 90s. Oh. All right. So, for many countries that came out of the dissolution of the Soviet Union and the Eastern Bloc, particularly those that sought the help of American advisors, the people got to experience the libertarian wonderland that Ayn Rand humping Westerners have only dreamed about. And this has led to the tragic comic outcomes that you would probably expect. Mm-hmm. Stories of enterprising businessmen selling industrial cleaners as vodka uh, abound. 
but few of these Wild West stories match the level of ridiculousness uh, that privatizing the power infrastructure created. Oh, and we watch. Oh, we'll get into that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So in 1995, I'm going to give you some, uh-huh. some stories here, some accounts. Okay. In 1995, the Kola Peninsula Power Authority cut the power to a naval shipyard that held, held four nuclear submarines. <laughs> now, cool. important to note, Nuclear submarines run off external power when they are docked, and these mm-hmm. were dry docked. <laughs> but the reactor stays active. You actually, while you can power down a nuclear reactor, you mm-hmm. actually really can't turn it off. Turning it off right, is actually right. a very long uh, process. Right. And turning it back on would be actually a very long process. So they're left on, but all the cooling systems, power, etc., are provided via external power, right? Okay, yeah. So after cutting power to the base... One of the submarine's cooling systems, and keep in mind there were uh, four of them, <laughs> one of the submarine's cooling systems failed, causing its reactor to overheat. Ooh, cool. What we were seeing was the beginning of a reactor meltdown. Mm. At issue was a $4.5 million debt to the power company. Hmm. Essentially, the submarine was in the beginning stages of a reactor meltdown with three other submarines heading the same direction, in order to collect a $4.5 million debt. Wow. Sailors from the base did what you might expect. They grabbed their guns and paid the local power company a visit. After forcing the power back on at gunpoint, sailors then occupied various power substations in the area. The power company was livid that they didn't get to reenact the Chernobyl meltdown. Quote, The fact that the military people can come to our premises and dictate their terms at gunpoint (laughs) causes great indignation and anxiety, a company spokesman told the New York Times. Imagine being that fucking person or those people (laughs) that think in that way, like, how dare they, as you fucking try to annihilate... Like they wouldn't let you uh, have a uh, like they they wouldn't let you reenact Chernobyl. Yeah, 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 for fun and profit. Uh, they defiantly told the New York Times they'll still have to pay for their electricity. Oh. oh. So this was not an isolated incident. Uh-huh. In another dispute between the neighbor and uh, the Navy and the power company, a submarine was sunk in port when the power company shut off its external, external power supply. Again. In 1994, a power company cut the power to a flight control tower at a military base while <laughs> dozens of planes were flying in the air. Cool. In another incident between a power company and the army, a base commander sent a tank to the company office and threatened that they either turn the power back on or he would shell the office. <laughs> Which, as we'll find Good. out later, was not an empty threat in the new Russia. <laughs> wow. So, these problems weren't confined to Russia itself, as yeah. you alluded to earlier. Uh, there's Ooh. a fantastic documentary called Power Trip. Yep. That uh, came out in 2003 and follows the trials and tribulations of the American company, AES Tallahassee, as they uh, purchased the Georgian Power Company, mm-hmm. or the Georgian uh, the wonderful Power CEO Network. of that, co- or what was yeah. that company um, from Mount Vernon? Yeah, yeah, had a, a Washingtonian native yeah. as, uh, CEO. Uh yeah, so they had bought AES Tallahassee in Georgia, the country Georgia, not the state. <laughs> uh, uh, at one point in the documentary, 
they cut off power to the Tbilisi airport right as a passenger plane is about to land in order to induce payment from the airport. Mm -hmm. Uh, In the documentary, you can see an AES employee cackling maniacally as he retells the story. I wanted to fucking punch that guy in the face so bad. He was such a piece of shit. I mean, all of them were, but yeah, I just, I, I really wish harm on him because he was driving a fucking car and cackling and I was hoping Mm -hmm. that he would fucking die. (laughs) Well, and for those of you who need a little bit of uh, uh, light in this, uh, the people of Georgia who, again, were at that time had about 70% unemployment. But the thing to remember about everybody in the Soviet bloc was because education was free and college was free, all had literally world-class educations. Mm Mm-hmm. And particularly world-class technical educations. (laughs) And so they stole power like fucking champs. They rewired boxes. They created uh, uh, devices inside meters so that when they started using the power, it would actually turn the meters off. Uh Uh, Some of them just uh, went ahead and went old-fashioned, just straight took an axe to the power boxes. Uh, Yeah. Uh, And eventually, A.S. Tulassie, after losing money for... You know, five or six years finally had to leave the Georgian market. Yay! But still, these stories of uh, just insane, uh, you know, businesses running amok, doing whatever the fuck they want, mm. just abound to this day. Abound. Yeah. Uh, one of the funnier stories to come out of the you know, quote unquote Russia Gate investigation <laughs> was the uh, investigation of the Internet Research Agency, which, <laughs> by the way. Uh, given the release depositions from uh, the Mueller report, uh, apparently we are now all agreeing it was just a private company. But <laughs> but a Russian oligarch had given the Internet Re- Research Agency a uh, considerable amount of money. I think he ended up giving them something like $100 million hmm. to, uh, one, run ads that they essentially were going to steal money from as like these sort of phishing ads on Facebook. Yeah. But also to run some like uh, pro right wing ads or whatever that might have amounted to some pro Trump ads. Uh huh. And in the true irony of this whole thing, and you know, the U.S. you know people in the U.S. or Democrats complaining about this is what happened to that money is what happens to all money in Russia in these situations. Yeah. The hundred million dollars eventually showed up at the Internet Research Agency with some of it being stolen along the way, so it already showed up a diminished amount. Yeah. Then they proceeded to do none of the work. All the money vanished. Nobody knows where it is. And uh, I think they ended up producing 80 ads in the time for $100 million. Hell yeah. Uh, which I don't think is what the guy was hoping for when he paid. No, but... this but... is uh, a general state of affairs <laughs> in Russia. Wow. And that's what it is to live in the libertarian paradise. So, Brent, Damn. how are we feeling? Where are we at on the meter? Um, I think we're a th- like a solid three right now. I mean, this one, it has some funny stories, so it kind of it it brings you back. It's just, I think the one thing in my brain, are we, are you, are, are we continuing? Part three, Yanks to the rescue. I feel like it's like we're watching The Stand, 
Like, we have to flip the discs or put in the VHS. Or like, mm-hmm. part one, part two, part three. Exactly. Mm. So, talking to a reporter in 1998, Russian mm-hmm. sociologist Boris Kagerlitsky, again, I won't get anybody's name right, mm-hmm. explained the seeming contradiction of a bunch of old Soviet officials parlaying their position in the communist state to become overnight millionaires by helping their sworn enemies plunder their country. Quote, You must realize that the key aim of the Russian elite was to become equal members of the world's elite. Whatever it took, if they had to tear down their own country to shreds in order to be accepted into that club, then they would tear the country to shreds. Yeah. That's that's exactly, like, my thought is, like, I mean, like, an entire fucking country is being sacrificed for this few. Right? They're like, we don't give a fuck. Yeah. Let them die. And we can destroy everything, or I guess not just Russia, but you know the Soviet. What was the Soviet Union? So it's multiple countries. Mm-hmm. Um, they just don't give a fuck. Because well, and we had heard uh, uh, Mark Ames talk about who is. Uh, uh, oh my God! Totally blank. I say Matt Taibbi is Matt Taibbi's writing partner in Russia at mm-hmm. the Exile, mm-hmm. and they were in Russia while this was going on, uh, writing a dissident yeah, newspaper. Yeah. And uh, we'd heard recently an interview Mark Ames actually expressed this exact same sentiment where he said, I think in his words, that Russian elites after perestroika, when they went to go visit countries in the West, yeah. found themselves embarrassed. Embarrassed yeah. that their shabby clothes, embarrassed that they weren't driving the fanciest cars, embarrassed that they weren't living the lavish lifestyles of the ruling elite elsewhere. And They were jealous that they weren't pedophiles. Yeah. And at that well. point, and at that point, that's when the the game plan came into motion, right? Yeah. So the United so, States flooded the former Soviet Union with uh-huh. advisors to yeah. make the dreams of the nascent ruling class a reality, right? And change the narrative mm-hmm. of, you know, mm-hmm. yeah. So in 1990, the Bulgarian Communist Party reformed as the Bulgarian Socialist Party, or BSP. Okay. And did the unthinkable. It won the country's first multi-party election. Western leaders considered the victory to be a huge setback in their plans to roll back Soviet communism. Mm. When a delegation from the Council of Europe declared the election to be legitimate, the U.S. responded by saying that fear and intimidation arising from, quote, the legacy of 45 years of totalitarian rule (laughs) had produced, quote, psychological pressures on Bulgarian voters. Oh, everybody had Stockholm syndrome, right? Yep. In reality, the BSP had over 1 million members and won 47% of the vote because they opposed dismantling the command economy and endorsed only limited market reforms, something that the people had learned to be afraid of uh, after watching the uh, Polish economy collapse under Jeffrey Sachs' (laughs) uh, rule uh, Hmm. just prior. So U.S. Secretary of State and all-time baddie James Baker was immediately sent to Sofia to publicly meet with opposition leaders and the National Endowment for Democracy, or NED, an organization with deep ties to the CIA, dumped $2 million into opposition campaigns. The NED funded fake student groups and other opposition forces that led rallies and protested against the BSP in Sofia. Caving into the pressure, President Vladnavov uh, resigned less than a month after his election. The U.S. front groups continued protesting, however, burning books and Soviet memorabilia in the streets and eventually burning down the BSP headquarters. Hmm. 
Finally, the head of the opposition forces was made president by a special vote of the parliament. After the opposition assumed the presidency, a U.S.-funded right-wing evangelical group, the Free Congress Foundation, also with ties to the CIA, hmm. came in and began working as official advisors to the opposition. The leader of the FCF in Eastern Europe was Laszlo Pastor, a Hungarian immigrant to the United States and founder of the Republican Heritage Groups Council. Cool. Oh, and he was also a convicted Nazi war criminal. Way cool, man. We all know the U.S. loved the Nazis. Yeah. Well, and this is a theme that we're going to come across again and again. So eventually, uh, the BSP would collapse and the opposition would take over the government. It was praised as a great victory for democracy. In 1996, the LA Times wrote of the triumph of capitalism in, Bu in Bulgaria. Quote, living conditions are so much worse than the reform era uh, that Bulgarians look fondly back on communism's good old days, when the hand of the state crushed personal freedom, but ensured that people were housed, employed, and had enough to eat. Oh, damn. That doesn't sound... I'm sorry. Like, that makes no sense either, too. It's like well, crushed your personal freedom by, a like providing you with things like yep. that are necessary with, uh, food so uh, that threads and homesteads. you can literally you don't ever have to worry about those things uh, you can actually like focus on having a quality of life having relationships mm -hmm. with people pursuing hobbies or interests mm -hmm. god it sounds so awful well the problem with uh freedoms is the same problem you have with the issue of rights right is mm -hmm. that Freedoms and rights frequently have a way of conflicting with one another. Mm -hmm. And as Marx famously said, when rights you know, conflict and come into contradiction, force decides, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so the freedoms they were missing out on uh, were the, I guess, the freedoms to uh, own a business or pay a lower tax rate. Uh, right. The freedoms that they didn't need were the freedoms of having food, uh, a mm -hmm. place to live, well, and a job. It's just like, you know... Um, we can't have universal health care here, Medicare mm -hmm. for all, because then that would people our would exactly people would lose their choice to pick their own uh, provider because <laughs> they just love their providers and their mm -hmm. health care exactly. insurance. Everybody loves them. Everybody does. So all across the you know former Soviet bloc, similar victories for freedom and democracy were occurring. Mm -hmm. In 1991, the communists won in multi-party elections in Albania. Again, the NED came in and funded opposition forces that eventually toppled the government. Okay. In the 1996 election, Albanian strongman Sali Berisha uh, and his party had a sweeping victory after they banned the Communist Party from participating. Uh, they used the police to intimidate voters and engage in massive election fraud. It's going to huh. be another common theme we're going to hear. I was say, that sounds really familiar, man. Again, the West applauded this victory for democracy. Berisha, after his victory, knew who to thank. He said, quote, We won because we enjoyed the powerful support of our great friends in Europe and the United States. Victory! Victory! <laughs> victory! <laughs> in Poland, supporters of Lech Walesa began to worry that he might not win the 1990 election, given the reforms that Jeffrey Sachs had brought in the year prior. Mm. Walesa's backers began making excuses that might justify a future power grab by the dictatorial leader. They argued that the Polish people's inability to fully support Walesa showed their lack of democracy. Quote, mm. If we can trust the Poles, this means we are not a society mature enough to accept democracy. 
Others argued that Walesa's lack mm. of a clear mandate demonstrated Polish people's, quote, distaste for politics that they developed under communism. Any vote that <laughs> resulted in Walesa not being elected was automatically considered to be, quote, undemocratic. Man. American support for Walesa went back a decade at this point. In 1981, a French magazine reported that Walesa had secretly met with a collection of American State Department officials, as well as the presidents of Ford, Westinghouse, General Dynamics, and IBM at a restaurant near the Roissy Airport outside of Paris. Hmm. Inside the closed restaurant, they asked Walesa a barrage of questions. Quote, are you Poles ready to give up your Saturdays off? Do (laughs) Polish workers know how to work, and are they ready to do so? And a general question that kept coming up over and over again, quote, if your government listens to you, will you be able to control the workers' movement for economic demands? <laughs> Starting in 1981, U.S. support for Walesa and Solidarity, his union, amounted to $2 million annually, plus training and equipment from the CIA. $10 million additional dollars from the NED and an additional $300,000 from the AFL-CIO formed uh which formed one of the cia's covert links with the group was given to solidarity hmm. the afl-cio at this time by the way formed the public facing communications with solidarity uh but basically were communicating via cia agents uh mm-hmm. in the afl-cio huh. yep by 1989 thanks to a generous grant from the george soros foundation uh jeffrey Sachs and his team were in Poland advising Walesa and Solidarity on how to reform the Polish economy. (laughs) Within a year, capital was flowing out of Poland and into Western banks, and a third of the Polish people were living in poverty. In 2019, the London School of Economics noted that, quote, within a single generation, Poland has gone from one of the most egalitarian countries in Europe to one of the most unequal. Another triumph for capitalism. In Russia, the Yeltsin government also faced immediate challenges. During the aborted August coup in 1991, when some communist officials tried to retake the government, Yeltsin called on the workers of Russia to put down the coup. Most Russians remained passive during the coup, choosing not to support either side. Yeah, because they've already lost everything. Like, they can't risk losing Mm -hmm. very little that they already have. One observer, a stock trader, Stonks. was shocked at how few workers heeded Yeltsin's call. One group that did hit the streets in support of Yeltsin en masse was the burgeoning Moscow finance community who left the stock exchange to repel communism in the streets. <laughs> These sto- stonks, 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 stonks. <laughs> These stockbrokers funded the defense of parliament, buying them food and other provisions. Aryam Yegorov, a broker who participated in the events, noted, Quote, up until the coup, we were just interested in making money. Politics was like a game, and we did not want to become involved. But after the coup, we realized that we risked losing everything that we had won. There was no way we were going to allow things to go back to the way they were. <sighs> Class interests coalesce. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Yeltsin was assisted in Russia by the Harvard Institute for International Development, or HIID, which was given carte blanche with, US, with the USAID budget and priorities to remake the Russian economy. So the HIID was given the full budget of USAID to do with what they will yeah. in Russia, as well as uh, the ability to determine all the priorities of it. 
Under Russian First Deputy Prime Minister Anatoly Chubai, HIID, under the leadership of David Lipton and Jeffrey Sachs, rewrote the rules of the Russian economy and government. Backed by Larry Summers, who had moved from head of the World Bank, where he made shock therapy a condition for loans to Russia, to Undersecretary of the Treasury for International Affairs under Clinton, HIID received $57 million in government grants and was given control over $300 million in USAID grants to do their what they will in Russia. Wow. HIID used its money to buy influence in the Russian government mm-hmm. and then used that influence to dole out rewards to Western investors and loyal Russians. Cool. Harvard economics professor and HIID member Andre Schleifer would write in his book, Privatizing Russia, quote, Aid can change the political equilibrium by explicitly helping free market reformers to defeat their opponents. And one might add, to declare winners. In short, HIID was building a new Russian oligarchy and paying themselves handsomely in the process. (laughs) Of course. Obviously, many of the losers in this trade were not happy. After the Russian parliament began opposing Yeltsin's deeply unpopular shock therapy economic reforms in 93, Yeltsin began trying to circumvent the legislative body. The parliament then moved to impeach Yeltsin, at which point Yeltsin dissolved the parliament after the Russian uh, Constitutional Court agreed that they could go on with impeachment. After the parliament refused to dissolve itself, Yeltsin had the parliament building shelled by Russian tanks, and then soldiers were sent in to (laughs) retake the building floor by floor. (laughs) And this is crazy stuff. He literally brought in tanks and artillery from outside of Moscow to shell what's called the White House, which is the Uh, Russian parliament building, but to just shell the fucking building. And they did. They shelled it. Um, In retaking it floor by floor, they also killed several people inside the building as well well as in the shelling. Uh, There also were tens of thousands of people in the streets of Moscow who were out to support the Russian parliament. Mm. Uh, They were brutally attacked by security forces. Mm -hmm. In the end, at least 150 people were killed and hundreds more were seriously wounded. You know, just small casualties for the greater good. The New York Times praised Yeltsin's bold defense of constitutional democracy. (laughs) Yeltsin went on to shove through a new Russian constitution that completely dissolved the parliament and created a new one in its place, effectively unelecting the former parliament. (laughs) By the 1996 election, Yeltsin began to get himself together. He was given a team of American campaign organizers attached to the Bill Clinton uh, campaign in Arkansas. Oh, this is going to be good. Yes. And the California uh, governor, Pete Wilson. Mm -mm -mm. Things are looking up. (laughs) They proceeded with a two-pronged strategy. First, try and convince the Russian people that if they didn't vote for Yeltsin, that there would be a civil war. (laughs) You don't vote for him, you're going to (laughs) die. As the Americans told Time magazine, quote, Stick with Yeltsin, and at least you'll have calm. That was the line we wanted to convey. Yeltsin used his monopoly control over Russian media outlets to launch a media blitz of campaign ads while freezing out his opponents with this message. The second prong was to use the $14 billion in no-string-attached aid from the United States to engage in a campaign of mass election fraud. So Bill Clinton basically in the State Department sent $14 billion to Russia for Yeltsin's campaign. Cool. <laughs> to essentially win him this election. Cool. 
That's why it's like extremely hard to believe that. Oh, Russians interfered with the election. Well, in, in light of this information, it seems a little silly. Uh huh. Um, right. And by the way, when I say mass election fraud, I mean in the boldest possible ways of like Tammany Hall adver- shit, yeah, open like, advertisements yeah. of I will give you this amount of money to go in and vote. It's Tammany Hall shit, yeah. And yeah. QAnon people are in really desperate poverty at this time, so oh, yeah. it really doesn't cost a lot in uh-oh, order to uh, you know get these votes, right? Uh, so Yeltsin appeared to support or. Uh, Yeltsin appealed to supporters by giving anti-communist speeches, referring <laughs> to the collapse of the Soviet Union. Mm. Yeltsin declared, the repression of the former regime could not break the intelligentsia, a code word in Russia for capitalists understood by all. <laughs> Despite going to extraordinary lengths to rig the election, Yeltsin still came perilously close to losing to the Communist Party candidate, Gennady Zhuganov, who was a comically uncharismatic candidate. Did they kill him? Uh, well, he didn't have to because he did manage to scrape by. But oh. worried over the polls prior to the election, Yeltsin had actually ordered decrees drawn up that would have canceled the election, closed down the parliament, and banned the Communist Party if, if it appeared that they were going to win. Mm-hmm. All this was done with full U.S. knowledge. After the election, President Clinton again praised the sham election as a great victory for democracy. Oh, man. God, this sounds so familiar. <laughs> By 1998, the American infatuation with Russia was starting to wane. There was $200 billion in American investments in the country and a deep fear that they might not be able to get the money back out. (laughs) Major investors, most notably George Soros and the Clinton State Department, uh, pushed for the IMF to give uh, Russia a series of loans amounting to $21 billion to cover any potential losses Western investors might face. (laughs) Speaking to a congressional hearing on loans to Russia in 1998, financier Jim Rogers laid it out. Quote, The activities of the organization is gussied up in sanctimonious prose about aiding the poor and raising the living standards of the third world. Don't be fooled. These bailouts are really about protecting interests of Chase Manhattan, J.P. Morgan, and Fidelity Investments. Of course, if Chase went directly to Congress and asked for taxpayer money uh, or taxpayer help to cover a bad loan it made uh, to Russia, it's not hard to imagine the response Chase would get. But under the cover of the IMF, it can do this regularly without so much as a peep of criticism. Mm -hmm. So what's happening is the ruble is collapsing yeah. and Russia is going into a new you know, economic freefall yeah. but Americans now have enough investment in Russia that they're concerned that this is going to devalue their investments uh-huh. and they want to rush to the rescue hey guys so, this is just part of uh, shock therapy you know you guys are at the bottom of the U exactly. you gotta be at the bottom of the U before you get to the top yeah, of the U again have been since 91 right mm-hmm. so I'm going to read now uh, it was so good. I, I, I just got to read it, uh, you know, read okay. some big chunks of it. This is from a New York Times article uh, from 1998 uh, called For Russia and Its U.S. Bankers. Match wasn't made in heaven. Aww. So. In June, as Russia lurched toward a financial crisis that set off global shockwaves, the House of Unions was rented for a glittering celebration of capitalism with one of the country's most ardent bankers, Goldman Sachs and Company as its host. 
Goldman flew in former President George H.W. Bush, paying him more than $100,000, and entertained Russia's former prime minister. But between toasts... Uh, uh, but between toast uh, to United States Russian ties, the talk was about what really mattered to Goldman and many Wall Street brethren <laughs> deals. <laughs> True, Russia was a mess. Uh, the government's bank accounts were almost empty, and even the postal system. <sighs> oh my God. And even the postal system was near collapse. Hmm. But Goldman wanted to become Russia's leading deal maker. Paid mm-hmm. handsomely to finance the government and newly private businesses. Now was the time to prove that Goldman could come through with money in a crisis. So in the days preceding its <laughs> elegant soiree, Goldman helped the government raise money by selling $1.25 billion in bonds. A few <laughs> weeks later, it arranged a complex deal in which short-term debt was exchanged for long-term debt to give Russia financial mm. breathing room. Mm-hmm. It was not enough. By late August, the Russian government stopped paying what it owed on much of its debt. Buyers of the bonds that Goldman sold now hold, uh, now hold nearly worthless paper. Mm-hmm. Goldman itself escaped the bloodbath. In the course of those bond deals, it earned tens of millions of dollars in fees and protected hundreds of millions of dollars it had at stake in Russia. When the government defaulted, Goldman said its losses were absolutely minimal. <laughs> Senior Goldman executives expressed regret that Russia's economic program collapsed and that the deals that bear <laughs> Goldman's imprimatur uh, did not always work as intended. But they defended the firm's role there as, quote, very constructive and attributed mm-hmm. the country's troubles to problems that had little to do with investment banking. Goldman maintains a small office in Russia. Mm. Now, a little bit later in the article... We get a little quote about maybe what has happened in Russia. Okay. Quote, What the Russian problem reflects is that today's bankers often don't have long-lasting concerns about customer-client relations, (laughs) said Paul Volcker, the former chairman of the Federal Reserve, (laughs) an all-around asshole, and occasional (laughs) advisor to the Russian government. Uh, You just do the deal and you get out. Mr. Volker noted that Russia was part of a broader problem in many emerging markets where local companies and governments have tried to raise money quickly by issuing securities even before they are ready to handle the demands of shareholders and debt payments. Greed, pre- <laughs> Greed prevails over prudence in these countries, mm. Volker said. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. Uh, again, just uh, obviously it's their fault. Yeah, I mean, they're just so greedy. I mean, we were just coming in to help, and they just took, 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 When asked about the unfolding disaster in Russia in 1998, Anders Aslan stated, quote, They, the Russians, they only look after their own interests. No one in Russia is strong enough to look after the interests of society as a whole. Wow, but... Guys, guys, communism, bad. After years, these people are so <laughs> selfish that they can't uh, look after the interests of other people. <laughs> so after years of legal wrangling, in 2005, Harvard University, along with Andre Schleifer and his associate Jonathan Hay, agreed to pay a fine of $31 million to the U.S. government for, quote-unquote, breach of contract regarding <laughs> their actions in Russia. Mm-hmm. 
Both Schleifer and Hay had acquired fortunes in Russia, engaging in insider trading and other financial schemes. Hay's wife was given license to create the first mutual fund in Russia by an office that the HIID ran. Schleifer used a Boston-based hedge fund to extort millions from the country based on policies that Schleifer was personally writing for the Russian government. Hmm. Harvard paid the fine out of its massive endowment, and Hay continued to work in finance. Schleifer kept his job in the Harvard Economics Department, where he was protected by the university's new president, Larry Summers. Hey. That's what we call a callback. Hey, hey, hey. You know who he was also friends with? (laughs) Yeah, we'll get to that. So back back in Russia, in 1999... Things were looking bad for old Boris. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. He was once again facing impeachment charges, and this time the parliament wasn't fucking around. Boris's impeachment charges, see where Clinton got impeached for lying to Congress? Right. Boris had real impeachment charges. And charges like the genocide of the Russian people, one of his charges. You know what? (laughs) Come on. I mean, uh, come on. He was charged with the destruction, the willful destruction of the Soviet Union. (laughs) This is made up shit. Come on. As well as a large number of other major financial crimes. Right. Boris, once again, leaning on his old tricks, decided to take the enormous sums of money he had made while president, and he outright and again extremely publicly bought off no votes on the impeachment and so i believe he had seven charges against him and for every no vote i think he would give you is either five thousand dollars or ten thousand dollars wow and this was done extremely publicly and wouldn't you know it he was able to scrape by without getting impeached Hmm. but yeltsin knew the writing was on the wall and feared, even though he was in ailing health and pretty much knew he was going to die soon, mm-hmm. feared that retribution might be taken out on his family for the many crimes they committed against Russia, uh, okay. against the country. So, still president, he went and searched for a replacement. Yes. He needed somebody that didn't have the same drunk energy that he had. <laughs> he found a... A guy who worked within his party and within his political sphere, a younger man in much better health, who was a teetotaler and was known for keeping his mouth shut and being mm. really good to the grift. Mm, 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 mm. That man was one Vladimir Putin. Yay! Yeltsin, using a loophole that he wrote overnight into mm-hmm. the Russian Constitution, yep, he created himself. Then stepped down and made Putin president of Russia. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Where he has existed either in a very real form or in a shadow form since that day. But that is a story for another day. Woo! So where are we on uh, on the scale now? We're still at like a mm, three. Just we just met a three. <laughs> Not crying, but it is frustrating.
1998, standing over the wreckage of the Russian economy, Deputy Secretary of State Strobe Talbot, who along with Larry Summers served as Clinton's point man with Russia, blamed the Russian people for the country's collapse. <laughs> Quote, of course. Over time, the tug of the Soviet experience will weaken. That process <laughs> will just take a generation or more. Oh my God. Speaking to a New York Times reporter in 1998, a young woman in Moscow commented on life in the modern Russia. Wow. Quote, if I could work as a nurse and be paid decently, then believe me, I wouldn't work as a prostitute. As part of its oh, transition wow. to a free market paradise, Russia had become the epicenter of prostitution and sex trafficking. Other Eastern European countries fared no better. Hmm. In 1996, Newsweek noted that, quote, Prague and Budapest now rival Bangkok and Manila as hubs for the collection of children to serve visiting pedophiles. Cool. Most of these women and children enjoying the triumphs of capitalism were brought to the West to serve the very vampires, bloodsuckers, and middlemen hmm. who had destroyed their home countries. Most notoriously, Jeffrey Epstein became fond of Eastern European women hmm. who, uh, quote, who were more expressly for sale, to quote Vanity Fair. Hmm. Epstein was reportedly fond of bringing his Eastern European models, definitely in huge quotations, to the campuses of Harvard and MIT, where he created deep working relationships with the faculty. Ah. Of course, Epstein had deep ties with many of, uh, many of the Americans in our story. This is from a 2003 article in the Harvard Crimson. <laughs> he, Jeffrey Epstein, he likes Larry Summers a lot. Epstein's mm. friend and Frankfurter professor of law, Alan Dershowitz, says. <laughs> oh, wow. He speaks well of Larry, and I think he admires Larry's economic think uh, thinking. In fact, Summers and Epstein were close personal friends going back to the late 1980s mm. and had served on various foreign policy uh, panels together. Huh. <clears throat> In their home countries, women were not doing much better. All the rights granted to women under the Soviet Union were removed, paid pregnancy and maternity leave, equality with men in wages and promotions, mm -hmm. special training opportunities, and special safety consi uh, considerations in the workplace. Women workers were subject to rampant sexual harassment at work. Mm. One Polish uh, woman lamented that the economic demise comes earlier for women now, since to get a job, quote, you must be young, childless, and have a big bosom. Mm-hmm. A U.S. State Department cable leaked in 2011 on the state of Russian women stated that, quote, the social pressures imposed by economic difficulties since the fall of communism have pushed many women into the position of focusing more on survival than on defending their rights. Yeah. The cable goes on to state that the newfound freedom to exploit workers left women with little recourse to resist sexism in the workplace. Fear of being fired or even suffering physical abuse keeps many women from fighting back. A 2007 survey found that 100% of Russian women respondents reported being sexually harassed at work. Hmm. Job advertisements routinely include age and gender requirements. The female director of the Association of Women Journalists told the U.S. Embassy officials that in Russia, quote, job applications are like a beauty contest. Hmm. In East Germany, 88% of people remarked that conditions for women were better under the GDR in 1995. 
Once one East German woman uh, commented, quote, women are robbed not just of daycare and income, but of their social life, friendships, and communities of solidarity, which were all centered in the workplace. She added that most East German women are, quote, extremely apprehensive about the isolation they face and a newfound dependence on men. Mm-hmm. A 2006 German documentary, Liebt der Osten Anders, Sex im Geitaiten, Geitaiten, Deutschland, which means the love lives of others, sex in a divided Germany, okay. begins with a startling revelation, quote, East German women's orgasm rate was apparently double that of their West German sisters. Sex in the former GDR was earlier, better, and more often. <laughs> in looking at this phenomena, historian uh, Kristen Godsey argues, quote, Eastern European women enjoyed far more rights and privileges compared to Western women. Western feminist demands were often for things already granted to women in state socialist countries. All of these changes meant that women gained independence from men and no longer felt compelled to trade their bodies for economic security that bound Western women to unhappy marriages and sexually incompetent lovers. Mm-hmm. By contrast, East German men complained about their sex lives in the GDR, lamenting that, quote, money was useless and, quote, <laughs> you had to, and, quote, you had to be interesting to meet and hold a woman. Damn! <clears throat> One told researchers, quote, I have much more power now as a man in unified Germany than I ever did in the communist days. Shortly after the West German annexation, sociologists in East Germany began to notice a disturbing trend. The triumph of capitalism had caused the crude birth rate in East Germany to drop from 12 births per 1,000 people in 1989 to 5.1 births per 1,000 by 1993. It was the largest drop in crude birth rates ever seen in the industrialized world, (laughs) surpassing that of Nazi Germany and Imperial Japan following their defeat in World War II. Yeah, nice. So again, unparalleled. (laughs) One researcher noted that such a decline in childbearing is only seen during, quote, times of catastrophe, desperate privation, and widespread loss of life. Mm-hmm. One aspect of the downward trend in birth rates was the upward spike in the rate of women choosing to have abortions. In East Germany, abortion had been both legal and less stigmatized in West Germany, mm-hmm. meaning that the sudden spike in abortions was not due to, quote, increased freedoms, but rather increased cynicism amongst East German women about the future. Yeah. yeah. Think, things weren't getting better for others either. A 2002 report from Amnesty International stated that, quote, Fear of racist attacks among Russia's minority population is not confined to fear of skinheads. They have almost as much to fear from officials. Police and law enforcement officials routinely subject racial and ethnic minorities to harassment and intimidation and often respond with indifference to racist attacks. Mm -hmm. In one example, uh, when Ethiopian refugee Andafers Dassou and his wife were beaten by racists armed with chains in 2001, Mm. the medical report recorded that their injuries were the result of a, quote, fall, Mm -hmm. and the police worked to kill the investigation by misreporting the description of the suspects. The fallout (coughs) a window, just like uh, Mm -hmm. some doctors that are working on the COVID? That's reserved for other things. Oh, okay. In 2001, an African student studying in Moscow told the BBC, quote, even on the metro, I'm scared. I can't even go out anymore. Russia is no longer safe for us blacks. 
Racist statements by public figures in Russia have been allowed to go without comment, and anti-Semitic publications are once again openly sold in the streets of Moscow, just as they have been under the days of the Tsar. Despite efforts by authorities to obscure the real figures in the first... Uh, uh, Despite efforts by authorities to obscure the real figures, in the first six months of 2007 alone, 47 people were murdered in 300 separate racist attacks. Skinheads unheard of in the days of the Soviet Union are estimated to number around 70,000 in capitalist Russia. Hmm. Anti-Semitism and Holocaust revisionism have also been rampant in the former Soviet states. Hmm. These strains were baked into many of the nationalist movements in Eastern Europe. In Poland, Solidarity was uh, revived the legacy of Marshal Pilsudski, the fascist leader of Poland in the 1930s. Pilsudski, among other things, was famous for opening the first concentration camp in Europe in 1934 at the urging of Joseph Goebbels. Hmm. After his death in 1935, Pilsudski became a symbol of fascist Poland. Cool. In Thanks. 1980, <laughs> yeah. In 1981, Solidarity renamed the Lenin shipyards the Pilsudski shipyards and were known for carrying placards with Pilsudski on them at events. Mm. That same year, prominent leader Marian Drzyk delivered a speech in which he asserted that three quarters of the communist leadership were Jews. Mm. The next month, another Solidarity official claimed in a radio broadcast that the Communist Party leaders were, quote, either Russians or Jews from Russia who changed their names. Mm. During the 1990 Polish elections, Lech Walesa spread a rumor about his opponent that he was a secret Jew who had changed his name. Mm. Walesa claimed repeatedly during the campaign that there were Jews in politics uh, that were hiding their origins in order to corrupt the new Poland. The New York Times, one of Solidarity's staunchest defenders, wrote of Walesa's campaign at the time, quote, one historical fact may contribute to the current debate over hidden Jews. In the early... Yep, actual quote from the New York Times. Oh, Jesus fucking Christ. So one historical fact may contribute to the current debate over hidden Jews. In the early years of communism, the Soviet Union relied on Jews in key positions, oh, including Christ. in the top posts of the Polish secret police. Some even changed their names. So according to the American paper of record... Apparently, communism is a secret Jewish conspiracy after all. Hmm. One politician told the Times, quote, The fall of communism has opened a Pandora's box, from which all the demons have escaped, among them anti-Semitism. Mm -hmm. In Ukraine, Stepan Bandera was posthumously awarded the Hero of the Ukraine Medal. More than 50 streets are named after Bandera, and 15,000 people marched in his honor in Kiev in 2014. Bandera was the leader of the Organization of Ukrainian Nationalists in the 1930s and 1940s. As head of the OUN, Bandera formed the Noctegal and Roland Battalions, Ukrainian military units that were folded into the Nazi army. Mm. The OUN's political campaign included the eradication of the Jewish people, who they saw as the backbone of Soviet communism. During the war, the OUN enthusiastically participated in Nazi war crimes at every level, from turning people in, to running death squads, to aiding in the operation of the concentration camps. Mm -hmm. And right here I have a story that's literally so fucking depressing, I'm no, not actually going to read it. please don't. So I'll put that in the bibliography notes for people who really want to get bummed out. Okay, it's thank uh, you. next level bad. Thank you. 
So similar stories can be told about the revival of fascist leaders in Lithuania, Estonia, and Latvia. Fascism fever was not some spontaneous outpouring, however, but rather a conscious political project whose goal is first to equate Nazi and Soviet crimes and Mm -hmm. then absolve Nazi crimes and place them on the Soviet Union. Uh The first salvo of this effort was fired by West German historian Ernst Nolt in the early 1980s in what came to be known as the Historiker Streit, or history battle. Mm Mm-hmm. Nolte argued that Nazism and the Holocaust were, quote, natural and understandable reactions to Bolshevik aggression. (laughs) That the Nazi invasion of the Soviet Union was a defensive war and the roundup of Jews in concentration camps was necessary since they had, quote, communist sympathies. Jesus Christ. Roundly condemned by German historians, Nolte and his views became a media sensation in West Germany and Western Europe. In Poland, historian... Marek Jan Chodokiewicz argues that anti-Semitic pogroms in Poland both before and during the war were okay because they were not about racism since the Jews were all communists. (laughs) Sorry. Wow. He also (sighs) argued that the murder of Jews returning to Poland after the war by Polish nationalists was justified because Jews had collaborated with the Soviet Union. He then weeps for the execution execution of Poles who collaborated with the Nazis as travesties of justice. In 2005, he was made a member of the Oversight Board of the U.S. Holocaust Memorial and Museum in Washington, D.C. Cool. Cool, guys. <laughs> All over Eastern Europe, memorials to the Holocaust have been removed or replaced with new placards alleging the Soviet Union per- uh, perpetrated the crime. Wow. There's also been a booming industry for museums that tell the story of the Soviet genocide of World War II. Mm -hmm. During a speaking tour in the late aughts, American historian Penny von Eschen described the creation of these museums as proof of Eastern Europeans' hatred of totalitarian communism. When asked why the museum gift shops only sold items in Western languages, primarily English and German, mm-hmm. she was forced to admit that many of the museums were privately funded, built far from town centers so as to be inaccessible to locals, and were created mm. primarily for Western tourists. Mm-hmm. The function Who of this. Nazis <laughs> yeah. and hate Jews. Well, I think that Nazism is a key uh, component, and fascism is a key component of burying the Soviet Union. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The function of this campaign has been clear. In order to secure the capitalist future, the communist past had to be buried. To do this, they have rehabilitated fascism, because who could be better at burying communists? Mm -hmm. In case this still doesn't paint a full picture of the apocalyptic way that people are forced to live, a 1997 report from Amnesty International revealed that police in Russia were so violent that 43% of Russians said they would not open their door to a police officer. Mm -hmm. Oligarchs hired private security forces that numbered several hundred thousand in the country. Critics of the new Russia to this day have a way of falling off of buildings or shooting themselves multiple times in the back of the head. Mm -hmm. Recently, uh, there was a big article about some Russian doctors Uh who complained about medical supplies of the COVID crisis miraculously falling off of buildings. They just were just too close to an open window. mm -hmm. Well, generally what happens is is they they commit suicide. And the way you know they commit suicide is because they throw themselves through a closed window, which is a, Ah. a very typical sign. Ah, yeah. And that's just the beginning. 
Uh, so I think I told you a story before, but I had a professor at Texas Tech who was a political science professor. I won't name because I'm sure he doesn't. Yeah. Want to be, I'm yeah. sure he doesn't want to be associated with our podcast. Who <laughs> <laughs> had spent many years in Russia and had uh, was living there uh, from '97 to '98 during the ruble crash. Uh-huh. During the winter, the power company cut off power to his apartment building because his landlord had not paid the electric bill, which the tenants had been paying to the landlord. Uh-huh. That night, several people froze to death inside the building. Cool. He was set to leave as the ruble was crashing in 98. He had to pay his cab driver with his watch in order to be able to get to the airport and, in his words, escape. Mm-hmm. Many in the Eastern Bloc talk about how they believe that homeless people and people dying for lack of food or health care were fictions created by a communist to keep them in line. They have since learned that is not the case. <laughs> huh. When we- I mean, uh... <laughs> When Western journalists, uh, when a Western journalist cornered a doctor outside of a Moscow hospital in 1992, the doctor told him, quote, life was different two years ago. I was a human being. When the reporter asked whether he was grateful for his newfound freedoms, he responded, quote, freedom for what? Freedom to buy a pornographic magazine? Hmm. Hmm. Kristen Godsey relays another popular Bulgarian joke in her book. Uh, what was the worst thing about communism? What? The thing that came after it. Ah! Uh-huh. Uh huh. All right, Bren. What? We've now got done a survey of the effects of the fall of communism in uh-huh. Eastern Europe. Yeah. You're now brimming with pride. At the special role of the United States what? in this. What? That's gross. Uh, Don't you're say living that. the high life. Uh, we're living moss right here at this table. No, you're drinking where, high life. Where are you at on uh, how sad is the story? I mean, it's very sad. I don't. I mean, this. Uh, I, I mean. I, All right, I'm going back and telling the story. I promise not to tell you. I was going to say, like, you didn't make me cry, but that doesn't mean it's not, like, fucking gut-wrenchingly sad. Mm. I mean. So you have no tears for the people of East Oh, my God. (laughs) Shut the fuck up. God. It's bad enough that I agreed to this. Yeah, it's an enormously tragic story, and, um, you know, it's made doubly awful by the fact that America plays such a prominent role in this oh, yeah. whole story, but nobody yeah. in America knows anything about it. No, not at all. Because uh, they just nope. couldn't be bothered. I mean, communists and, are bad, guys. Yeah. Communists are bad. And it's also uh, amazing that without a hint of irony or anything like that, uh, that yeah, people will complain about the those, you know, dirty Russians were. I mean, just look at how they live, you know, the awful people, right? I mean, including key players in these stories, right, that essentially went in, uh, stole everything that wasn't bolted down, Mm -hmm. right, turned Russia into this, like, awful libertarian hellscape, and then had the fucking balls to then complain. Blame those people? No. Well, it's their own fault for not accepting capitalism Mm -hmm. and living like this. Also, it's just natural <laughs> they're just in the bottom part of the u you know now there is a funny russian story which i didn't convey mm, okay but after the ruble crash uh all these you know 
there was a bunch of Boston banks because of Harvard's you know proximity in Boston, right? Yeah. A bunch of Boston banks had gotten involved in all these like financial schemes in Russia, right? Uh-huh. So, uh, a lot of like small banks actually. It's like pretty surprising who you see in it, right? Who are trying to play with the big boys like Goldman Sachs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, when the ruble crashed and those banks went to try and get their money out and wanted to be covered and everything, uh-huh. uh, one, the IMF loans didn't go to them, <laughs> and two. Uh, actually, when they went to try and get the money from Yeltsin and threatened uh, international uh, uh, that they would they would try and try him, you know, pr- you know press international law against him. Yeah. Uh, Yeltsin basically laughed and made a comment to the extent of, "We have sixteen thousand nuclear weapons. We don't have to pay loans back." <laughs> Which actually led oh, to Jesus. it ends up getting blamed yeah. on the Asian uh, tigers collapsing, which was part, uh, which basically caused by the ruble crash and stuff. But there's uh-huh. a, a link between like the Russian collapse and the collapse of the economies of South Korea and uh, Indonesia huh. and uh, whatnot. But um, there was the, the sort of all connected. But uh, a whole bunch of banks in Boston actually ended up going under. And it was blamed on the Asian tigers collapsing. But in reality, mm. it was literally because, uh, like, they got caught up in this Russian scheme. And <laughs> all their money that was invested went to Goldman Sachs and other people to cover their losses. And they, they, got, <laughs> they got stuck footing the bill. Uh, learning that in America, there's an oligarchy, too. And they are not of it. <laughs> but wow. uh, Jeffrey Sachs, this day, still is a very prominent economist. Uh, he claims to have really learned his lesson from the uh, dozen or so uh, countries he completely destroyed in the 80s and 90s. I mean, uh, Anders Asland is still completely unrepentant, as is Andre Schleifer. Imagine being those fucking people. Like, how fucking diseased your fucking brain is. Yeah, when it's interesting. Like, like, being that horrible and rotten of a human being. That, like, I... I it's just beyond words. Yeah, and me and Greg actually had a conversation about this, talking about, you know, Nancy Pelosi versus a guy like Arthur Laffer. Yeah. And talking about how, you know, a lot of these people, they pursue, like, awful policies or but not in the supervillain way of, like, being architects of it. Yeah. Rather than just these, like, empty vessels that, like, are... You know, they they they, they are neoliberal it, subjects who right? can only think in that way, right? right so that right, would be right, your right. Chuck Schumer's, your Nancy Pelosi's, even your Donald yeah, Trump's, yeah. really. Well, yeah. Uh, yeah. Whereas there's these people who are like actual like finger twirling villains who know, know deep in their hearts, right, that they are doing bad in the world uh-huh. and actually don't give a shit, right? Because they yeah. don't care about humanity or anything nope. like that. Actual nope. psychopaths and sociopaths. Yeah. Amongst these is literally everybody we've named in this story. Absolutely. <laughs> Jeffrey Sachs, fucking George Soros, fucking uh, yeah. Andre Schleifer, yep. Jonathan Hay, Larry Summers, Bill Paul Clinton. Volcker. Yeah, Bill Clinton actually in that group, definitely. Yeah. Um, all of which... Obviously Jeffrey Epstein. Yeah, you know, yeah. <laughs> uh, not shocking that they're all personal friends of Jeffrey Epstein, which Larry Summers, mm. long-time personal friend of Epstein, Bill Clinton, long-time personal friend of Epstein. Uh, I have not looked into Jeffrey Sachs and Epstein, but I'm sure they're connected because oh, Jeffrey mm-hmm. Sachs is a long-time personal friend of Larry Absolutely. Summers. Absolutely. But, yeah. Oh, I'm sure of it. Every one of these characters is just more rotten and awful than the last one. Fucking... And, uh, you know, there's no... You just hope for some sort of hellish afterlife because there really is like no punishment right. that is enough for these people. No, there's not. I mean, like entire countries, mm-hmm. not one, which is bad enough. Multiple, mm-hmm. like 
multiple, like mm-hmm. more than one hand. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, uh, Jeffrey, like, Jeffrey Sachs pursued these exact same policies in more than half a dozen Latin American countries before he eventually went to Eastern Europe. But guys, stop. But Brian, I'm going to stop you right here. It's all due to communism. Yeah. Communism is bad. Mm-hmm. All right? It should the be. The tug of communism, they're all, they all have Stockholm Syndrome. I mean, it'll wear off, you know, yeah. after a while. Well, it should be noted, too, that, like, uh, the popularity of communism is quite high in all these countries to this mm-hmm. day. So the people who mm-hmm. actually lived in it yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. actually have a high opinion of it. Uh-huh. Uh, there was actually a poll where a, like an overwhelming, I think it was like three quarters of East Germans thought yeah. that West Germans should not even be allowed to have opinions about life in East Germany. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, I mean, but uh, yeah, but yeah uh, popularity is quite high. Even for people that are seen as the most, you know, sort of uh, from by the West perspective as the biggest villains of communism. So in Georgia, when they took down the statue of uh, Stalin and Uh Gori, they actually had to do it in the middle of the night with hundreds of security guards because they were so scared of the popular (laughs) reaction. Now, is that an endorsement of Stalin's policies by the people of Georgia? Yeah, probably a little bit. But it's also, you know, it's them saying this is a symbol of an era, right? Right. When we had food, when we had a place to live, when we had a future, right? Uh, we didn't of live, life. yeah. We didn't live in a post-apocalyptic hellscape. Yeah, when, we didn't have to steal electricity. We didn't yeah. have to question when we were going to have our next meal. Yeah, um, when uh, when a Georgian, uh, when we lived in a society where a Georgian could be elevated to the highest political position in the land, right? Um, <sighs> all things that. Uh, let's say don't exist anymore now georgia the northern part of georgia is run entirely by russia where it's uh-huh. occupied militarily the yeah. southern part of georgia is an american colony yeah. uh, where it is occupied by all the uh vipers bloodsuckers and middlemen but you know and what hey, being- hey 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 <laughs> you heard it you said it <laughs> that's the problem it, it was just missing that exactly. and now they have it yeah and i mean all these you know uh all the poorest countries in Europe are in Eastern Europe. All the poorest countries in Central Asia are former Soviet states. I mean, it is truly remarkable that we just don't think about this in any way, that capitalism took a population that really was living modern industrial lifestyles yep. and things like that and just ground them into desperate third world poverty in uh-huh. less than a decade. I mean, in many cases, Jesus less than a so. few years. The kind of things that take wars, you know... Yeah years and years and years to accomplish uh, a bunch of Harvard fucking nerds and stockbrokers did in a year or two. Uh, And just astonishing. 